All right. Um, the best days, in my opinion, are the days that you didn't expect to be great. You kind of woke up expecting an average day, and then it turns out to be better. Um, sometimes when you're expecting a really good day, it just doesn't meet the expectations, right? But the, the best days are when your expectations were low, and then the day turned out to be better than you expected. You know, like Oral Roberts making it to the Sweet 16. I mean, if that's your thing, you like basketball. But have you ever had a day like that? I think that if we kept that attitude most days, we would realize that almost every day is better than we deserve. Almost every day is better than we should have expected. Um, The times when we're disappointed are when we think we deserve better. And that's sort of what I want us to kind of walk away thinking about this morning as we study Ruth. Um, Last week we started this brief study in the book of Ruth, and Ruth was um, a a young woman from Moab. Ruth probably at the time was in her mid to late 20s, and her husband was from Bethlehem, and he he traveled to Moab with his family during a famine. Okay? Uh, Ten years into their marriage with no children, Ruth's husband dies. And instead of staying in her home country, which was the sensible choice for her, she followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem, Naomi's home. And at the end of chapter 1, we found that Naomi and Ruth were in a tough situation. But to try to help us understand why, I want to show you where these women were on the social ladder at their time, okay? So hopefully you can see this. The print I know is kind of small, um, but you know, just listen. It's it's pretty simple. So at the top of the food chain, at the top of the social order at the time was whoever the judge of Israel was. We don't know who it was at that time, but that was number one. Okay. Underneath was the tribal leader. Okay, so Naomi's tribe was the tribe of Judah. Underneath him would be the clan leader. Uh, the clan would have been their town of Bethlehem. And then the clan subleader. Now, Boaz, we think, was either three or four. Okay, so very important person in town. Then you have all the older fathers of homes and households. And then the regular fathers like Elimelech, which was Naomi's husband. Then you have the eldest son and the other sons, then the wife. Okay, so you see where women fall here, even below the sons. Um, Naomi was, at that time, this was her social status, though she was a widow without children. Okay? Um, You've got the daughters of the household, and then come the male servants, the female servants, um, female servants from lower classes, And then you've got resident aliens. And then you've got male foreigners. And then at the very bottom, female foreigners. And this, this was Ruth. Okay? This was the social ladder at that time. Naomi, a widow with no children. Ruth at the very bottom. 
And this is, I think, critical to understanding what this story is really about. So now with that in mind, let's dive into Ruth chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Okay, Worthy man in Hebrew is Gibor Hael. Okay? It means that Boaz was a man of character and of wealth and of valor. Um, he was probably also a great warrior. Um, his name, Boaz, actually means man of strength. So we're introduced to this guy, and he's a pretty, he's a pretty big, pretty big, bold character. Okay? Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, Ruth decides to become the breadwinner of the family. There are no men, right? So it's just Ruth and Naomi. And she becomes a common laborer in order to support both of them. And we should be asking the question, why isn't Naomi helping? And you might say, well, she's too old. Actually, Naomi was probably not that old. She was probably about 45 at the time. Okay? The text leads us to believe that maybe she is depressed. Not that she's too old to work. And I think that makes Ruth's sacrifice even more special. That she volunteers to care for them both without judgment. Alright? Verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Um, something hidden in the text is that the writer wants us to know that Ruth had no idea who the field belonged to. Um, twice in Hebrew it says that she chanced upon his field. Okay, so Ruth doesn't know where she is. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Um, this is important because it tells us that Boaz worships Yahweh. He worships the true God. It also tells us something important about his relationship with his servants. Notice that they are blessing one another. Okay? So Boaz was a good boss. He was a good man in a time of wicked men. Remember, this happens during the period of the judges. And remember all the stories that we read about the people of Israel living during the period of the judges. Okay, So Boaz is kind of the exception. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Okay, now I want to pause here and explain a few things. First of all, gleaning is something that God had commanded his people to do. Um, landowners were, or not to do, but to allow. Um, landowners were forbidden from harvesting all of their fields. Okay? Um, they were morally obligated by the law of God to leave the corners and uh, the edges of the fields for the poor. And this was understood to be the grace of God, right? These people don't own this land, but um, we're going we're gonna to let them take some of it so that they can feed their families. It was built upon the idea that everything we have really belongs to God anyway. That's how the Israelites were to understand what they had. It, it belongs to God. God is... Uh, stewarding me with it. He's entrusting it to me. Uh, but it doesn't actually belong to me. Now, in practice, gleaning was often abused um, in the sense that there was fierce competition for these leftovers, okay? And a lot of times there was very little actually left for people. Um, they would leave just, you know, like what is a corner, <laughs> right? What is an edge? It would leave just a little bit. And there was a lot of competition, and the people who were doing this gleaning were very much looked down on, okay? So if you think of a person digging through the trash outside a fast food restaurant, no one wants to have to do that, okay? No one wanted to be gleaning. No one aspired to be a gleaner, right? And it was especially tough for women, single women, Especially, Ruth was putting herself in a very high-risk situation. But there's actually another little hidden nugget in this text. Ruth made a very bold request. She actually broke the rules of her culture by asking to glean behind the reapers. So, during a harvest... If you think of a field, okay, the men would go first into the field with sickles and they would cut the sheaths of barley at the stalk, okay? The women would then come in behind them, their wives and, and young women would come in behind them and gather up the sheaths and carry them in. And then the gleaners were supposed to be this third group that would come Last, They were supposed to wait until all that work was finished and then they could come pick whatever was left. Okay, So Ruth had asked the men if she could go with the other women in that second group. Not something she's supposed to ask. And Boaz could easily have been upset by her actions as the landowner. Right? She broke the rules. But Boaz surprises everyone, even Ruth, with his response. Let's look at it. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. 
Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Why would he need to do that? Because it's dangerous for young women to be out here alone. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? You remember the social pecking order? Okay. Oh, whoops. We're on verse 11. Uh, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed it to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. In order to really feel how amazing this is, You have to understand that Boaz and Ruth were opposites. Okay? Boaz had no cultural or practical reason to be interested in Ruth. And actually, I I don't think he's doing all this because he thinks Ruth is, is a marriage prospect. Um this is this is not you know, a modern 21st century love story. We kind of read that into it when we read this story. Um, but, But the bottom line is, this is to the Jewish people, this is an amazing story because tribal leaders do not marry foreign women who are gleaning in their fields a couple thousand years ago, okay? Um, Especially not a woman who had a reputation for being barren. It was no secret that Ruth had been married for 10 years and had produced no children, which is a big deal. And so I think Boaz was really just a good man trying to honor a good woman. He had heard her story. And he's choosing to, to be gracious. This is, this is radical generosity. This, this is such generosity that it would have shocked even the field hands, right? That he's giving her a seat at the table. That he's bringing her to a place that she didn't deserve to be. And those of us in the room that are Christians, your gospel alarm bell should be going off right now, right? That's the point 
of this story, but we're going to, let's finish it first, and then we'll come back to that. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Guys, that's about 29 pounds of grain, which is unbelievable, okay? Um, A typical male field hand would only bring home about one or two pounds of grain as wages for his whole day's work. And Ruth is bringing home as a gleaner at least 15 times that much in one day. And so we're supposed to read this story and think, wow, that's, that's shocking generosity, right? She's not taking home one loaf of bread. She's taking home like the whole bakery. Pretty cool. Verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what had been gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now circle that word redeemer. We're going to come back to it next week. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. In other words, you can keep doing this every day. And Naomi said to her, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. Again, the risk. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, are you starting to see the fingerprints of God all over this story? Right? The writer wanted us to know she didn't know what field she was even in. Do you think she ended up in that field by chance? And that, brothers and sisters, is the first of three big applications that I want us to walk away with today. The first is that God is providentially concerned with the care of His people. There are no coincidences in the kingdom of God. Not for His people. Nothing happens by chance. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all His people and all their actions, all His creatures, really. And so to us, it may feel like we are just sort of stumbling into blessing or testing. But that's never what it is to God. God knows exactly what He is doing. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what happened yesterday or last year, 
Um, none of the COVID stuff surprised God, okay? All things work together for good for those who love God. That's what Romans says. That's what I believe. And that's what stories like this in the Old Testament teach us, is that God, His fingerprints are in, his, in this story. They're on ours as well. That's an important note, one that I have to make. Number two, I want us to think about this generosity. The gleaning law was, um, it was an important check on the hearts of the wealthy, on, on the hearts of the haves. And I mentioned, right, I mean, there's, there was some struggle in practice with applying it. And my guess is it was never applied very well. Boaz was probably the exception, not the rule. Because they're asking themselves as landowners, okay, God had said, leave a corner in the edges. Well, how big is a corner, right? I mean, technically an edge could be like one stalk all the way down, right? That was the, that was the practical struggle. What is my responsibility to the law of God. But that really missed the spirit of the law, right? The spirit of the law was actually this. What is your responsibility to the poor? That was the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law was that God's people should feed God's people. God's people should be caring for one another so that no one went hungry. God said, this is not going to happen in my house. This is not going to happen in my nation. And so therefore, you must leave some. Don't forget that the immediate need of Ruth and Naomi was hunger. They were literally hungry. They literally had no one else to provide for them. No husband, no sons. They had no reliable source of food. They had nothing of their own to barter with. They had no field to, to grow on. And God met that immediate need with His grace first. We see the same thing happen in Jesus' ministry, right? How much of the Gospels is... Jesus going to someone to meet their physical needs in order to speak to their spiritual needs. How much of the story is about that, right? We saw it in the early church when we studied the book of Acts. We saw this radical sharing of resources within the church so that no one was hungry. And I think this is important. I think this is an important part of the story that we need to wrestle with. God was not finished blessing Ruth and Naomi, but He first resolved their hunger. And I think that's an important reminder for us as a church. Um, very often, God is going to call us as Christians and as a church 
to meet the physical needs of our neighbors first so that we can communicate their spiritual need and meet that with the gospel. That's an important part of our work of making disciples. And so my challenge to us, to all of us, to myself, because this is not easy even for me, right? My challenge to us is in our lives, if God has blessed us with enough that he's given us to steward that ultimately belongs to him, which includes all of our resources. And if we are the spiritual nation of Israel, if we are his people, part of his family, and we have an inheritance that will not perish, the same question can be asked of us, okay? And it's not, I, none of us are farmers that I know. Most of us aren't farmers, right? So. I'm not being literal here, but I'm asking you, what's the corner and the edge in your budget? How close are you going to cut it? How much does your family actually need? That's, that's number two. And then finally, we need to talk about God's love again. Um, you see, the, the beauty of this story, and it's about to turn even more so to Ruth and to Boaz, but this story is as much about Naomi as it is Ruth and Boaz. Naomi sat at home all day. And no doubt she's worried for Ruth because she mentions twice about the safety issue, right? So she, she knows that it's dangerous for Ruth to go out alone. And so we know that she was probably depressed based on chapter 1. We know for sure that she's having doubts about God's faithfulness at the end of chapter 1. She thinks that God's favor has run out on her. That's how she puts it. And then Ruth comes home with literal heaps of favor. Naomi could have never expected that. Far exceeded her expectations, right? God blew her expectations completely out of the water. And in verse 20, she responds by using that same word again, hesed. That's how she refers to God's favor. Being, being given, being put upon them. Remember last week, we called that word, we said that that's love without an exit strategy. Okay? God's love comes to us, and He's going to stick with us. Uh, it's a no matter what kind of love, right? It's something we don't even really know how to put into words based on our own relationships. But now we learn something else about God's hesed love, and it's this. It is really a one-way kind of love. And what I mean by that is that it, you know, love always involves two people, right? It's a relational word. You have to have two people to have love, right? Um, it's either both loving each other 
or in some cases one loving the other and the other not so much, right? And what I mean by this being a one-way kind of love is that God's love involves two people. It's God and us, but only one of them can deliver. Someone has a need, but no power or ability to meet that need. Someone else has the power to meet that need and chooses to do it in an unexpected way, in an undeserved way. It's a, it's a one-way choice to meet that need. And we see it all over chapter 2. Okay, We see it in Ruth as she goes to work the fields alone to provide for Naomi. It's a one-way love. Just a little example, but a beautiful example. We see it in Boaz as he breaks the rules of his own culture to protect someone who's at the bottom of the social status, right? It's a one-way love. It's an undeserved kind of love. And then we see it in God's overwhelming provision for Naomi when we know that she is full of doubts and discouragement. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, we see it in Christ Jesus. And if that's what this story is really going to point us to, as we're going to see really, really clearly next Sunday on Easter, um, what we see in the gospel is that God's love for us in Christ is a one-way kind of love. He is choosing to meet our spiritual need through forgiveness of sin and the imputation of righteousness, the providing of righteousness for us, not because we're that good that He had to to bless us in that way, but because He is that good. Because He is the generous landowner who decided to be gracious to those of us who worked very little, if at all, to deserve the heaps of blessing that He sends our way. The Scriptures say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Scripture says that we love because He first loved us. God gave a one-way kind of love. A love without an exit strategy. He imparted to us. He gave to us. And that's why we learn to love Him back is because He did it first. That is, brothers and sisters, the kind of love that humbles us. It's the kind of love that that has the power to transform us. It it gives hope to the hopeless. It, it, It gives us the power to forgive people who have hurt us. It helps us to love people who do a terrible job of loving us back. And according to Jesus, even even our enemies. Because that's what we were. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, this is just a, a really beautiful story. And um, I know that some have a hard time accepting the idea of grace, either because they have lived or continue to live in difficult circumstances. And I pray that they would experience your overwhelming grace in Christ. But Lord, some of us have a a hard time because we want so desperately to earn it. And I pray that you would humble us and help us to see that we never could. And Lord, some of us believe that we are so sinful and so unworthy that you could never love someone like us. But that's, that's kind of the point. And so, I, Father, wherever we are in our hearts this morning, I pray that you would help us to find the peace that comes in the knowledge of our salvation that is available only in Jesus, only by grace, only received by faith. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing.